Let's go to our God in prayer. Father in heaven, we, we adore you. You are so good and you are so kind. Your grace to us is astonishing. Our sin is so great, and, but yet your love is even more so. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who died for us who paid the penalty for our sin and who gave us life. We thank You that He conquered death and that He rose again from the grave and that today He sits at Your right hand. Father, as we turn to the Scriptures, I pray that You would teach us. I pray that You would be the one, that, that Your Spirit would be the one that would, would fill us, that would transform our lives to make us look more like Jesus as we encounter Your Word, encounter Your thoughts that are written on these pages. Help us to see how these impact our lives today. Help us to see how these exhortations should change us and call us towards obedience. And Father, my prayer is that, that our lives would be a reflection of the life of Christ in us. And so please, mold us to look like Him now. It's in His precious name we pray. Amen. Good to see you this morning. I missed you last week. We had a it's good to have my girls all back. I had to go all the way to Colorado to get them, but, uh, but they're here. So, but I missed you as well, and so it's good to be back with you. You know, one of the most influential teachers during my high school education was my 11th grade teacher for writing and research methods. Sounds like a really exciting class, right? But uh, ended up being one of my favorites. I dreaded it. I hated it uh, going into it because, because I was a horrible writer. I, uh, up until that point, I, I could not write anything without it being a complete disaster. My grammar was, was horrible. It was struggling. I had no organization. And quite frankly, I had no idea of even how to start writing a, a paper. But Mr. Lavad taught me not only how to improve my sentence structure and how to document my sources, but he, he instilled in me a, a passion for communicating in a way that mattered. I'll never forget the first time he sat with me, and he would call four students from the entire class, and, and we would all sit in a circle at the front of the class while others worked on their papers. And he would read our papers out loud within that group, and he'd start marking up papers with red ink all over the place. Tammy Holmes would just would love it, right? And um, she hates red ink, so we don't, we don't do that. Um, and so he would, he would mark all these papers, and then he would read them out loud, and, and he would ask a couple questions. We sat there in that circle, and he read through my first draft of my assignment, which, by the way, I got a D on. Uh, he marked that paper up, but as he read that paper out loud, he asked two questions that forever changed the way I wrote, wrote and, and, and communicated. The first one was this. Who cares? He would read a paragraph, and he'd turn to me and say, Who cares? I thought, well, this is really rude. I, I, I cared about that. I wrote that. And, and he looked at me and he says, no, really. Who cares? Who cares about what you're writing? Who, what makes these scratchings important enough that someone should pay attention? What do you have to say that will convince anyone that they should take the time to read what you have to say throughout the rest of the paper? Who cares? And then the second question was like the first. So What? I thought, this is really rude. He's already questioned whether my paper is worth, worth reading or not. And now he's saying, so what? He said, if you've convinced someone to read what you've, you're rambling about, he didn't say it that way, what difference is it going to make to, in, in their life? How is this 
going to change their mind about something? How will this change their beliefs, their actions? And these two questions from that point on, they were seared into the gray matter in my head and I rarely wrote a paper without considering those two things ever again. And the author of Hebrews, I believe, understood those two questions, or at least the principles behind them, when he wrote this sermon that we've been studying over this past few months. And I hope that you, I hope that you are the answer to the first question. Who, who cares? I, I, I never taught or preached through uh, the book of Hebrews before, and, and I have to say that, that this has been an incredible delight to uncover the truths that we've been looking at this last few months. To, to see how Hebrews is put together and its use of the Old Testament and this, this beautiful sermon that this anonymous author preached a couple thousand years ago. And, and it has been life-changing for me as I've encountered God's Word on this really sometimes been a, a wild ride. And, and we've had some challenging texts that we've studied. But I, but I hope that for you, as it has been for me, that the message of Hebrews has become dear to your heart. So who cares? This author has taken us into some deep theology. He saturated us into some Old Testament studies. But he's shown us over and over and over again. He keeps on talking about truth and then he backs away and he says, okay, let's, let's talk about how this impacts your life. Who, who cares? You should care. And here's why you should care. And he would address those things. He's comforted us. He's warned us. He's exhorted us. But, but we, and we've seen these three warning passages throughout the book of Hebrews. We'll look at the last one, the fourth one next week. All, all these exhortations, all these ad, admonitions show that he didn't just want to teach facts and hard doctrine. He, he wanted to engage his audience with this sermon epistle. And he wants you to care. He wants you to understand who Jesus is and why Jesus is superior to the angels. Why Jesus is superior to Moses. Why Jesus is superior to the high priests. And how that should change your life. That this is something that as hard as some of these truths are that you should care about. But he also understood the second question. So what? You see, Scripture isn't just about memorizing facts and details. God wants His Word put into action. I think that you're that this last three and a half chapters, that this carries a different tone than the first nine and a half chapters that we've looked at so far. Last time we came to the conclusion really of the argument of Hebrews, the, the, the final passage that really finished up what he's, he's really trying to say, and everything after that is going to be some solid application for your life and mine. As we bring our study to a conclusion over this summer, uh, we're going to be looking a lot at so what. We're going to discover the superiority of Jesus and how that should change your life today. If Jesus is really superior to all these things, and if He is really that much superior to all the something else's in your life that He replaced when you repented of your sin, then it should change everything for you. And going back to those somethings, just like the Hebrews were tempted to go back to that Old Testament Levitical system and a, a system of, of priests and temples and sacrifices. Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, why, why would I go back to that when Jesus has given me so much more? And whatever it is in your life, whatever those somethings are, we'll discover that the superiority of Jesus to change your life forever and going back to those things would be unthinkable. We're going to start today by looking at Hebrew, this, this uh, exhortation through the rest of this book. We're going to start with today's passage in verses 19-25 through 25 that Tamara just read for us. 
where the Lord exhorts us to three points of application. Verses 19 through 21 give us the basis for these exhortations. Really, it's a summary of the first nine chapters. And, and then, following that, that basis for these exhortations, he's going to give us the so what. We'll see a summon to worship. We'll, he'll change us, excuse me, he'll challenge us to live boldly in our present world as we sojourn through this, this life. And the third exhortation calls us to a right relationship, not only with God, not only with the world around us, but also with one another and those who are walking on this journey with us. Well, it's been a while. Let's look at verses 19 through 21. It's been a while, but you may remember all the way back in chapter 4 when we entered this section on Jesus as our high priest. Really, the heart of Hebrews has focused on this concept of what it means for Jesus to be a high priest. Not in the order of Aaron, but in the order of Melchizedek. And we've gone through some really tough Old Testament passages, but all of it has been showing us how Jesus is a superior high priest to everything that was experienced in the Old Testament. And all the way back in chapter 4, we talked about the middle of that chapter being a crossroads in the book of Hebrews. It was the conclusion of the first four chapters, but it was also the front door to the heart of Hebrews, the heart of this book, which we've now examined in chapters 5 through 10. We saw how Hebrews has shown us that Jesus is superior to the angels, superior to Moses, his faithful servant. He's a superior high priest. He's shown us that Jesus is superior to Aaron and all the priests of the Old Testament system. We talked about how one of the tasks that the high priest accomplished took place on, on what was called the, the Day of Atonement. Every year, the high priest would show up and he would make some sacrifices and then he would go into the temple. He wouldn't just go into the temple where most of the pre, a lot of the priests would, would carry out their duties throughout the day, every day. But then he would come to a curtain. And the high priest, one time a year, would cross through that curtain and he would sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant to make atonement for the people of Israel. It, it was never, though, it was never a completed task. Every year it had to be done again. Every year another sacrifice had to be made. Every year the high priest would pass through once more. But Jesus, we've seen, is the Son of God. And when He was sacrificed, when He offered His own blood, not the blood of goats, boats, wow, that would be a weird sacrifice. Not the blood of bulls and goats, um, but he offered his own precious blood on the cross. As our high priest, he completed his work. And Hebrews says that he passed through not just the curtain in the earthly temple, but he passed through the heavens. Jesus went into the most holy place in the heavens, and his work on our behalf was completed. And now he sits at the right hand of God the Father. And so when we opened that door back in chapter 4 and entered this, the heart of Hebrews, we were challenged with these words. Listen to how he says this. Back in chapter 4, he said, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And he followed that phrase with two commands, two exhortations. Hold fast, draw near. Now, what we're going to do now is we are, we are all the way on the other side of the heart of Hebrews, and here in chapter 10, I want you to notice that he uses this same pattern that he used back in chapter 4, and he's now going to close the door on the other end of this journey we've been going through in the middle of Hebrews, and watch how he echoes those words that he used back in chapter 4. 
He says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and then he follows that up with two more exhortations. In fact, the same ones that we saw back in chapter 4. Just a different order. Draw near. Hold fast. See, every year the high priest entered the holy place and they went behind the curtain alone. By himself. Back in chapter 4, we were told that the basis for holding fast and the basis for drawing near is that our high priest, unlike all the high priests of the Old Testament, our high priest passed into the heavens. He went through a different kind of curtain and he entered the very throne room of our God the Father. And he did it one time for all. And then throughout the heart of Hebrews in chapters 5-10, through 10, we've been unpacking this concept of Jesus, the superior high priest. The Old Testament high priest, they went behind a curtain, and then the people, they would wait. In fact, they put bells around his legs just in case he died in there. And they put a rope around him so that if they'd, they'd pull him out if he did die. Really. And they'd wait. And he'd sprinkle the blood on the altar, on the, on the Ark of the Covenant. And, and they'd wait. And he'd pray and he'd do whatever he was doing in there. And sometimes God wouldn't interact. And you read the story of John the Baptist and his father went in there and he, he was, God, God came to him and said, hey, you're going to have a son. People would wait. And then finally he would come out. The Old Testament high priest would come out from behind the curtain but we've seen that Jesus has completed that same ministry, but watch the incredible change that takes place in today's passage. Read again in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Did you catch that? In the Old Testament, the people waited. They would never have dreamed of following the high priest behind the curtain. It would have been a death sentence for them. Not even the other priests dared to approach the curtain. It was for the high priest and the high priest alone, and even he only crossed one time every year. But again, Hebrews has argued that our high priest is far superior to all the other priests of the Old Testament. So when Jesus passed through into the heavens, He completed His work. And not only did He complete His work, but the curtain was torn in two, and now you and I confidently follow Jesus right into the presence of our God. No death sentence. No bodyguards tackling you at the door when you say, I I'm going to go pray. No, no awkward glare from the one who sits on the throne wondering how you had the audacity to come before His very presence so boldly. Because of the blood of Jesus, you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, of those who have repented from our sin and turned to the living God, because of the blood of Jesus, you and I are welcomed by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain. That is, through His flesh. Oh, Christian, who, who cares? Who cares about all this? Uh, imagine the wonder of the Old Testament saints as they rejoice at our present privilege. Something that they never even thought of being able to do. Who cares? 
If you've been crushed by the heaviness of your sins and you've found mercy at the cross, then let us wonder in awe that such a glorious honor has been lavished on us. The basis for the three exhortations that are going to follow here, and really the basis for all the exhortations that we're going to discover in chapters 10 through 13, the basis for all of this is that we have a high priest who shed his own blood and made us friends of God. And so now this leads us to the second question So what? If Jesus did all this, if He did all these things that we've taken the time to to look at and to study over this, really all of the year so far, then so what? What difference does that make in my life? What difference does that make in your life? How should that impact the way that I live and believe and think today? If all of this is true and if your life and eternity have been so astonishingly altered by what Jesus accomplished for you by His blood, then we are called to respond. And Hebrews is going to give us, in today's passage, three commands. Three exhortations that summarize what our response needs to be to the wonder of what He has done for us. First, He commands us, draw near. Draw near. Isn't Isn't that a beautiful expression? Throughout the whole Bible, we see God talking about how He wants to to dwell with us. He wants relationship. And He calls us. He commands us. Draw near. He wants you to draw near. The command to draw near is saturated with the concept of worship. And we see it throughout the Old Testament in many contexts. It was a command found in Leviticus and expressed the the worship of the priests as they came and drew near to the altar and, and performed their duties at the tabernacle. It described in Numbers the ministry of the priests burning incense in the tabernacle that was symbolic of our prayers. It described the prayers of God's people in 1 Samuel as they drew near to God to inquire of God's will. What does He want us to do in this situation? In the book of Isaiah, the concept of drawing near expressed the heart of worship from God's people as they learned to, to hear what God might have to say to them. And in Jeremiah, in one of the passages that we've looked at several times throughout Hebrews, in Jeremiah, it was one of the promises of the new covenant in which the Messiah, the Christ, will draw near and approach the Lord and will thus usher the people into relationship with the God. We will be His people and He will be our God. You see, to draw near, it means that our worship is no longer confined to a tent or to a temple. A place that we have to go somewhere in another village, another city, in order to experience this kind of worship. But instead, we walk to his, into His throne and we have a relationship. James gives us a promise. He says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. And I've sat down and I've talked with some who've misunderstood this. I've heard people express this. I've tried drawing near to God. I've I've done this. I've drawn near to God and He's silent. He He won't do what I want Him to do. He won't draw near to me. And see, the problem is that they've attempted to draw near on their own terms. And so some assume that they can draw near to God by performing a lifetime of good works. Drawing near to God means that I'm going to be perfect enough that He'll accept me. So they say. And God responds to our works and says, your works are like filthy rags. That does nothing for giving you righteousness. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can give you that. Some assume that they can draw near to God by experiencing an emotional high. 
the enjoyment of music or the experience of a missions trip. Wonderful opportunities and experiences that are a part of our worship and they're a part of our service oftentimes. But if these are the basis of our relationship with God instead of one's faith in Christ who shed His blood for our sins, then that person will no more be able to draw near to God than a fish can touch the sun. Hebrews describes those who are able to draw near as those who do so with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so it's important that you understand that this, this beautiful invitation and command to draw near, that you will never be able to draw near if you are attempting to do so on your own terms. Only those who have found mercy at the cross can so boldly approach the throne and draw near to God. And then as believers, we are able to draw near as we come to Him in sincerity. We draw near with our trust firmly placed in Him and what He has accomplished for us. And we draw near knowing that we have been cleansed and washed by Jesus, our High Priest, who qualified us for such pure worship. Let's talk about what this looks like. On a practical, everyday level. Everyday level. What, what does drawing near look like in our lives? How do I do that? What is this worship that we're called to? I, I believe that one of the most obvious ways that we do so is through our prayers. That every time you pray, every time you offer up prayers to, to your God, that you are spiritually, on a spiritual plane, you are entering the throne room of God and you are drawing near to His presence. And, and He directs to you. He, he, he wants to talk with you. He wants to hear your voice calling out to Him. In prayer, I believe one of the most obvious ways that we can do so is in these prayers, but in prayer we offer up incense to the throne of our God. In prayer, we boldly approach that throne and have a rhythmic conversation with our Father. Not just at meals, not just before I go to bed at night, but, but as a part of my life that is a course of, of habit as I delight in Him and my heart just calls out to Him throughout the day because I love Him. Because I delight in Him. And so we talk to Him. We praise Him. We express our love and adoration. We ask Him for His kindness like a child talks to his daddy. And then we say, thank you. I love you. Another way that we draw near is in our singing of praises to this great God. It might be singing along with the radio as you belt out your adoration to Him in the car. Certainly it includes our praises as we gather together for worship on Sundays. And I'm not talking about the mindless just repeating of words that you've sung before and you're not even thinking about what you're, the, the words that are coming out of your lips. But the genuine song that overflows from your heart as you contemplate the words that you're singing. Drawing near takes place when we turn to the Scriptures and, and we read His Word. We draw near as we meditate on what we've read and studied and memorized. Drawing near takes place when we purposefully set aside time to cultivate this beautiful relationship with the God of the universe who has invited us to know Him and to be known by Him. Drawing near is growing in this relationship through our prayer, through our praises, through our encountering of what He has to say to us in His Word. When we are exhorted to draw near, we are summoned to true and beautiful worship. 
The second command in our passage, in verse 23, is to hold fast. You see, on the basis of our confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we are also exhorted to hold fast. In verse 23, again, it says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Back in chapter 4, this was also the exhortation that we were given on the basis of Jesus' entrance through the heavens. And here, the author of Hebrews, he's intensified that command with the words, without wavering. Uh, the, the term refers to something that, that doesn't bend. Something that's straight. We hold fast in such a way that it, our hope in Him is unchanged. It's unaltered. Our profession that Jesus Christ is Lord and our holding fast to the confession of our hope must not waver when trials begin. When they come into your life. We are, we are to hold fast when persecution intensifies We are to hold fast when tragedy strikes. We are to hold fast when we are disappointed by the failures of others. We are to hold fast when we ourselves experience failure and so we confess our sin and we find that He is the one who is faithful to forgive us. I was reading the story of of a family yesterday who um, they lost everything in a fire. Um, A a good friend, uh, somebody that that I've read from a bit, uh, he went to their house as they, they sat on their lawn chairs in their front yard and they just watched their entire, lawn, their entire lives. Everything that they owned, everything burned up in flame. The house was engulfed and they lost all of it. And they sat there watching and, and she, the, the wife saw this, this uh, pastor and waved him over and, and he came to encourage them and comfort them and see what, what, what they needed most. And, and the wife turned to him and she said, please pray that our neighbors are all here right now watching with us, crying with us, and they need to see Jesus in our lives. Pray that, and not pray for us, the turmoil that we're going through. Not pray for us that we might be able to figure out what we're going to do with our lives now, but pray for those who are here watching how we react to this tragedy in our lives because they need Jesus and they need to see the difference that He's made in us. My friends, that is what it looks like to hold fast that is what it looks like when, when tragedy strikes to, to firmly be placed. Uh, that our hope is firmly placed in our Lord Jesus Christ who is our hope. And that is, a, that is a holding fast that doesn't waver or bend when bad things happen. Notice that this unwavering conviction is not accomplished by our own strength. It's not accomplished by our own tenacity. We hold fast without wavering because God is the one who makes the promises. And He is the one who is faithful. Jesus is our hope. And He is always sure. You see, Hebrews was written to an audience, as we've talked many times, that they were going through some trials of their own. They were facing some persecution from their fellow Jews. And there was this temptation to return to the Old Testament system of of sacrifices and temples and priests. They were experiencing persecution and it was about to get worse. If we're right, and and, and Hebrews was written around 66-67 A.D., maybe as late as 68 or 69, then Jerusalem was going to fall in in a short one to two years. The temple was going to be burned to the ground. And and everything that the Jews thought about their Old Testament system and, and how God interacted with His people was about to change. And the persecution for the Jewish people was about to get crazy. 
And so there was this temptation to bend. And Christians were going to face, face these persecutions in, in ways that they hadn't experienced to such levels. And so there was this temptation to bend that was increasing. But they now had a high priest, he shows them, who had entered the heavenly temple. And by means of his own blood, they also had confidence to enter the holy places. And so God exhorts them to hold fast to the confession of our hope. Don't bend. And my friend, I want you to understand that tough times are coming as well. Not just the tragedies that normally strike in our lives. Not the trial, just the trials that you face on a regular basis. But I, you, you have to understand that this world will tolerate you and your beliefs less and less as every year goes by. Your Christian values, your faith in Jesus Christ is going to be looked on with disdain. And over the years, those trials will come. And there will be new forms of persecution. There will be loss of personal freedoms. Some of you may be faced in the course of your lifetime with the choice of whether I'll give my own life or, or deny Him. Some of you may be faced with the loss of your life because of the confession of your hope. And so whatever those persecutions are and whenever they come, my friends, hold fast. Don't bend. You've been ushered by Christ into God's presence. And on the basis of that and what He has done for you with His blood, enjoy Him and remember that He is the One who is faithful. And so let us boldly live in this sojourn through this world. The third exhortation calls us to a right relationship with others who are walking this journey with us. Look at once more at verses 24 and 25. He says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There are very, two very important phrases in this first sentence. The first one is this, consider how. I want you to think about those words. Consider how. We, we hear that and sometimes just kind of a, oh, hey, give, hey, listen to this, pay attention, this is important. No, no, that's not what he's saying. He says, this is a command. On the basis of your relationship with God and your entrance into the holy places, consider how you are going to do this. To consider means that you have to think about this. This isn't something that's going to naturally or automatically occur in your life. If you don't give thought to this, it's not going to happen. So you must remove the gaze from your own ambitions and your own needs and focus on the needs and service to other people. The second phrase is to stir up. Now, stirring something up can have a lot of negative connotations, can it? You ever stir something up and get a bad result? We can stir up strife. We can, um, one can provoke others to anger. One can stir up apathy just by not considering. But the author of Hebrews has an exhortation for you here. Since you are now confidently entering the holy places, since you have this incredible privilege of personal relationship with God the Father, the Creator of the universe, who knows you and wants you to know Him, we have to consider 
how to stir up one another to love and good works. <clears throat> so, <coughs> excuse me. Sorry about that. So again, how, how do we do this? How do we stir one another up to love and good deeds? Hebrews notes three essentials that give some context for us. The first thing he says is, don't neglect to meet together. The Hebrews had their own struggles. Some of them forsaking Christian fellowship and worship because persecution was driving them to discouragement. And so there was this, there was this real fear that, that bad things are going to happen to me from my fellow Jews or sometimes from the Gentiles because I meet with other Christians. And so there were some of the Hebrews that, and that's one of the main purposes that he's writing this book, this sermon, is that there were people who were avoiding going to church and avoiding fellowship with other believers because of the persecution that they really faced every day. And so they were forsaking Christian fellowship and worship because of persecution that was driving them towards discouragement. There were some of the Hebrews who were neglecting public gathering probably because of apathy. And quite frankly, we see our own roadblocks that lead us to neglect, don't we? Every year, I see more and more people neglecting to meet together because they're just other things that are more important in their lives. We have sports that we go to, whether we're watching them or participating in them, and those things begin to take over more and more. Entertainment, activities, work. There's all these things that are competing for, for your time and for your worship, and so we neglect this. We neglect gathering together because there are other things that we, on a routine, habitual basis, we put as more important than gathering together like we're doing right now. Now, now listen, this passage is not a command that you can never miss church. I, I don't want to give the impression that if you're sick, if you've got a sore throat or a fever or you test positive for COVID, okay, stay home and rest. <laughs> That's a good thing. And, and so he's not saying here that, that if you miss church sometime, wow, you know, you blew it. He, Hebrews is not saying that if you are on a trip to Florida, that, that you better hop on a plane and make sure that you're here by 9 o'clock on Sunday. This is not a command to get in the pew no matter how high your fever is on Sunday morning. And I, and I know that some have used this passage to promote a legalism that, that's just not here. In fact, the tense of the verb conveys the idea of something that is ongoing neglect. He calls it the habit of some. A habit's not something that happens when, man, I don't feel good this morning. I'm throwing up, so I'm going to stay home. That's not a habit. A habit is repeated, ongoing, continual. And again, my goal here is not to pin who is and who isn't neglecting. I, I'm not trying to point fingers at you today. Some of us are failing to consider, though, how to stir one another up by getting into this habit of just not being around God's people. And if this is something that you're struggling with, I think that you already know how you're neglecting, how that neglect is manifesting itself. Don't make excuses. Just destroy the habit by giving your attention to what God has commanded you. There are others of us who are failing to consider how to stir one another up simply by your neglect of encouraging one another. You may have perfect attendance in church and small group and Sunday school and prayer meetings and you're here early for VBS meetings every day of this next week, but you may be just as guilty of neglect because you've fallen into the trap, the trap that mere attendance is what God has called us to. Being a part 
of the community of faith means that you are finding ways to encourage others, not just be around others. You are using the gifts that God has given to you. And I want you to understand that every believer, every Christian, everyone who has found mercy at the cross has been given gifts and abilities by the Holy Spirit. And He wants you using them in service to others. Again, consider, considering how to do so means that you have to be intentional about how you're going to serve. It means that you have to be intentional about how you are going to seek to meet the needs of others within the church community. Don't let your, another month go by by remaining content to merely warm a seat on Sunday mornings. The body of Christ needs you. They need you using the gifts that God has given to you. And I know there's some of you going, well, I don't know what my spiritual gifts are. You know, I need a test. or I need, I need to go through a survey. I need to do this or that. Or somebody needs to tell me. And just three simple things. If you're trying to figure out what your spiritual gifts are, three things I recommend to you. Number one, get busy and start doing stuff. Uh, my, my youth pastor told me when I was in high school, he said, hey, we, uh, college actually, I've been at Moody Bible Institute, and he, I came back for the summer, he says, hey, what do, you, what do you think about teaching the eighth grade boys this summer? I said, oh, Rocky, I don't know. I just don't know if teaching is my spiritual gift. And he says, how would you know if you haven't ever tried teaching before? Get, get involved and do something, and, and then see if God uses it. And sometimes you're going to try it and you're going to go, wow, that was horrible. Try it again. My, my second time teaching was a complete disaster. But I, but I stayed with it. And I grew. And I developed the gift that God had given to me. Your gift may be service. It may be hospitality. It may be mercy. It may be faith. It may be evangelism. Whatever your spiritual gift is, I would encourage you, just start using it. Timothy was a pastor, and I, 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 my interpretation of that passage, Paul tells him, Timothy, you need to be sharing the Gospel. I'm paraphrasing here. Do the work of an evangelist. And, and, and I think that Timothy was kind of like me. He didn't have the gift of evangelism. I, I can share the Gospel with a person, and, and I can say the exact same thing. The exact same words with the same inflection that Gary Friedman shares that with. And they will listen to Gary and they will respond in faith and go, I need Jesus. And they'll turn to him. And I'll say the same things and, and, and then get no response. And part of that's because I, I don't have the gift of evangelism. And I think Timothy was kind of like me, maybe. He didn't have the gift of evangelism, but what did Paul tell him? Do the work of an evangelist. You are called to share the gospel with people. And so whether it's your gift or not, get involved and use these things and try these things. And some of these things you're going to find out, yeah, that's not me and you're to, to try to continue pushing it over and over and over for years and years, it, it's just going to make things miserable for yourself. But, but there's some things you should go for it. Use it. And, and some of those things are just opportunities that whether it's your gift or not, these are opportunities for service. So what I, my point is, is that, that God has gifted you in a unique and special way. A mixture of gifts that, that's yours and yours alone. But you're not going to discover those unless you just start serving. Another way that I think you'll discover your spiritual gifts is as you're involved in ministry and as you're serving in various ways, other people are going to come to you and go, wow, that, that was really amazing. You really impacted my life. That, that really changed the way I see this. 
Some people have the gift of faith, and I, I think f- the gift of faith is, is, is there are some people that just, they, they naturally have a tendency to trust God in the midst of things and encourage others to trust Him as well. And so when you have the gift of faith and someone comes to you and say, you know, I was really struggling and I, and I was wavering a little bit here, but your words to me the other day, they helped me to stay the course. Those are the types of things that are going to help you discover that these are the gifts that God has given to you. And the third thing I would encourage you with to help you discover your spiritual gifts, again, it's not a survey. It's not a you know, fill out this questionnaire and find out what my personality profile is. That's, that's not the best way of discovering your spiritual gifts. Get involved. Listen to what other people are saying. But then also, as you get involved and you serve, what are the things you enjoy? What delights your heart? And as you get involved in service and you find, I really love doing this, that might just be the spiritual gift that God's given to you. Well, as we stir up one another to to love and, and to good works, I encourage you to find many of these opportunities and these needs within the, Christian, the, within the church community. Don't let time go by just being content. Church needs you. And you need the church. This next week we got Vacation Bible School. And, and I know some of us look at kids and go, <laughs> those are scary monsters. I have no idea. All right. There are so many opportunities, though. And, and if you have the time, there, there, 70 kids, is that what she said? Already signed up? It's going to be a busy week. It's going to be a full week, and we're going to be tired by the end of the week. But what an incredible opportunity for us to tell children about Jesus Christ and to make Him known. A few years ago, uh, you know, during the service, we oftentimes used to have the, uh, just a cross up front, and, and the, that was kind of the default PowerPoint that we had. We had a kid come up to us, I think it was during vacation Bible school, and he asked one of his teachers, and he says, why do you guys keep putting that plus sign on the wall? And he was completely serious. Some of these children have heard the name of Jesus, and the only context that they have ever heard the name of Jesus is as, as, as a swear word. They have no idea who he is. And they need to hear the gospel. And so this next week with Vacation Bible School, it's a wonderful opportunity for us to be sharing the gospel within our community and as a church to to come and serve together. So if if you're not signed up yet, there are a lot of opportunities. Uh, Cindy would love to to find a place for you. And um, it can just be helping in a class and just sitting there and um, just having a presence, maybe listening to verses or directing children once in a while. Maybe it's helping with games. Maybe it's helping with snacks. But there are a lot of opportunities. Give it some thought and consideration. The third essential that fills, that fills in the context for stirring one another up is the urgency of these last days. Consider how to stir one another up to love and good works all the more as you see the day drawing near. Jesus is coming again. And the trumpet could sound at any moment when the dead shall rise and we shall be caught up to meet Him in the air. When Jesus ascended to heaven, He imparted His disciples with a commission. And the shortness of our time should give us the sense of urgency to be about His business, fulfilling what He's called us to do. Making disciples of all nations. So two questions for you today. Who cares? Are are these things really important? Is Jesus being our high priest Superior to all the high priests of the Old Testament. Is that really important? Who cares? And I hope you do. And so what? 
As we move out of the teaching portion of Hebrews and into the application section of Hebrews, I hope that you have learned to care about the message that is preached here in this book. I hope that you have understood in a new way what incredible truths are expressed in Jesus' ministry as our High Priest. Yes, we'll all read through Hebrews again and come to verses that stump us and concepts that challenge us. You'll see a quote from the Old Testament and go, I don't remember what we talked about there. This is kind of weird. I don't get this. But my hope is that, that you would care and that your confidence to enter the holy place, the holy places will lead you to serving Him faithfully. This transition from teaching to application is no insignificant passage. And so my friends, let us be purposeful as we draw near in worship. Let us live boldly and without bending as we hold fast to the confession of our hope, no matter what the circumstances are around you. And let us stir one another up to love and good works, devoting ourselves to meeting with one another, serving one another, and faithfully serving Him as we are motivated by the coming of our King and the One who is our High Priest, Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we do come before you and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who has accomplished what no high priest ever did in the Old Testament. We thank you for what he accomplished with his precious blood. We thank you that it was once for all. We thank you that he entered into the heavenly place and that he is now in the Holy of Holies in your very presence. And by the basis of his blood, we can now also confidently enter and draw near and hold fast and stir one another up in a way that would honor You as we love each other, as we serve one another, as we walk in good deeds. Lord God, glorify Yourself in our lives, we pray, as we go out from here. It's in His precious name we ask this. Amen.